How do you boys do? You okay? You're sweating. <laughs> How y'all doing tonight? Y'all ready for something different? Something special? I designed Megan to protect Katie from feeling lonely. She will recognize you as her primary user. And when you do that, you're gonna pair with her. Crazy. It's insane, right? Oh, don't I look nice? Biting my eyes isn't a pure perfection. Megan, your goal is to protect Katie from harm, both physical and emotional. One, two, three, four. I declare some more. I won't let anything harm you. I love her. Megan's not a person, Katie. You don't get to say that. Megan, what are you doing? Couldn't sleep. Occupational hazard. <laughs> Full attention. Don't stop. What the hell is that? You should probably run. Hello and welcome to the movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, it's a delight to say I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it is a incredibly huge delight to be here. And uh, yeah, we're talking about uh, a number of films in this episode, starting with M3Gun? I think that's how you pronounce it? I think that's how you say it? Well, let's end with M3Gun. Okay, so we're going to start with Babel0N. I think that's how you say it. B at Bilon0N. I think it's 8Bilon. 8Bilon, yes. The inevitable numeral additions uh, ahead of the uh, the sequels. We're front-loading our franchises now with all the um, too fast, too furious energy. Yeah, so Babylon, we saw that last week. The new one from Damien Chazelle. It takes a look at Hollywood of about 100 years ago, 1927, just at the end of the talkies, as Hollywood made the transition to sound. It's about different Hollywood people. So we have Brad Pitt as Jack Conrad, Margot Robbie as Nellie Leroy, Diego Calva as Manny Torres. So Brad Pitt is a huge star, Margot Robbie is a wannabe actress, and Manny is like a fixer for powerful Hollywood mogul who dreams of getting into the production side of Hollywood himself as well. Uh, This is about the pre-Hayes Code, so before Hollywood became regulated and became much more chaste, Um, when it was all very wild, when health and safety wasn't really a thing, when there was lots of excesses, lots of wild parties. Yeah, as we said, was directed by Damien Chazelle, who did Whiplash, La La Land and First Man. Oscar winner for Best Direction for La La Land. And um, yeah, three hours, nine minutes long. Um, Just going to put my cards on the table here. Intermittently fun, pretty gossamer, utterly hollow. Takes an hour and 20 minutes longer to tell the story that Singing in the Rain told and has no real songs or great dance numbers in it, apart from the ones that it shows from Singing in the Rain. It cost 85 million to make, it was a flop, it's flopped in the States, I don't think it's going to do that well here. Damien Chazelle, I think, is quickly becoming a uh, a bit of a flash-in-the-pan director. Can't see him really being given another big budget anytime soon. If he does, then he is quite the salesman, because First Man didn't really perform. This has flopped. Yeah, the further away from the film I get, the more I think the enjoyment or the enjoyable elements of that film were 
fleeting and not that great, to be honest. I did not like this film very much. How about you? I really enjoyed it at the time, as you say, especially the first hour. The first hour is just a blast. It's kind of this, um, this well, I think House Party is underselling it, but this kind of bacchanalian, coke-snorting, elephant-featuring orgy, essentially, at the, at the House of the Rich and Powerful. And that's, quite, that's just quite good fun. That's Giselle showing off, you know, lots of long tracking shots through ri- naked writhing flesh and setting up the characters, and it's got a certain energy and a certain... Uh, a certain audacity, but it's, it does all feel a bit safe. It's like you've literally, in the space of the first 10 minutes, had uh, elephant diarrhea and a golden shower performed. But this is a studio movie. So ultimately, you're a bit hidebound in terms of the story that you're going to tell. Because, yeah, you've got the um, you've got the Manny Torres character who kind of starts off being almost like the audience surrogate, who's like a new arrival in the, in the, in the, the glitz and glamour and seediness of Hollywood. And you've got Margot Robbie as Nelly, who's this, you know, this upcoming actress, and it's kind of her rise. Uh, while uh, Brad Pitt, who plays Jack Conrad, who's a, who's a silent film star, is incredibly like Lucian Debonair, is kind of on, on the way down. And yeah, from a certain point, it's basically telling the same story, almost from the second act, telling the same story of singing in the rain, of these silent film stars struggling to adjust to the, the advent of sound. I did like how the film managed to capture the technical complexities and the difficulties and the reining in of these actors who'd previously had a lot of freedom. It was much, a lot, much more like theatre. And actually more than simply like, oh, they had a silly voice. That's why they couldn't make it. It's like, no, actually, they just couldn't reinvent themselves. And the audience, you know, the audience is not wanting to see it. And I, I, I enjoyed the scope of the film, even if it was a fairly predictable arc. And I did think it had some pleasures within that. I think... Um, it's just very archetypal, and <laughs> ultimately it falls into the trap of, at the end it kind of has to go, yeah, but wasn't it all worth it, all the death and the misery, and the fact that we've shown battle sequences being shot for Hollywood where people literally died, and at the end it's like, yeah, but look at the spectacle, it's like, I think you've missed your own point. Yeah, I think that uh, when you say archetypal, I would say bulk standard. It is a bulk standard story. I mean, for three hours and nine minutes, the story this tells, Jesus Christ, um, so ordinary. And I'd heard that the opening hour was a blast and really, really fast, blah, blah, blah. I was a bit bored. I actually thought it got better as it went on. The opening party at the Hollywood Producers Mansion is, to quote Tim in Spaced when he's talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show, boil in the bag perversion. It is so, it's like, yeah, it's a golden shower. Yeah, there's lots of coke. Yeah, there's like people having sex in front of other people. But this all just seems very, very standard now, very safe. I mean, we've had HBO now for 40 years. You get worse than this in TV shows now. And also the thing there, I think that only fleetingly at times did this seem like it was set 100 years ago. Heavens were the attitudes quite progressive in this film, ultimately. And it's like, I think that's because, yeah, Damien Chazelle, his very, very talented director, doesn't have the maturity or the talent to write about people and attitudes a hundred years ago. They would have been very, very different. Well, they would have been casually racist, but this was a weird film in terms of like, there wasn't a lot of what we would now call Me Too behaviour. Everything seemed to be like a box ticking exercise. There was a bit of racism, but it didn't seem to be systemic or entrenched it just seems to be like okay we've done sexism we've done racism 
there wasn't really any kind of sexual threat to this film. And it's like, this is Hollywood from a hundred years ago. The women were there literally to be eye candy. This film has no darkness to it. I don't know why you're telling... Uh, well, I do know why you're choosing that, because then you can't have a big celebratory element to the film that says, but isn't it all worth it? So I thought, you know what? What's the point of telling this story when you can't be true to the time and you're telling something that was done so much better in Singing in the Rain? Yeah, I mean, it feels like you've got Jovan Adepo playing Sydney, who's this this jazz trumpeter who becomes kind of a, who becomes a kind of a star in his own right. But his again, as you say, the film kind of tries to touch on racism, but the most like there's a scene in it where essentially Sydney's being patronised by a bunch of very wealthy socialites, and it's like. This is kind of the extent of the racism we've seen against him in this film. Mm. And that feels odd. That feels avoidant. Also, you've got um, Lee Jun Lee as uh, Lady Faye, who's this cabaret singer who's, you know, got kind of the, 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 the perfectly um, lacquered spit curl and the top hat. <sighs> there was a film made in the 70s called Day of the Locust with Donald Sutherland. It was a very, very dark look at Hollywood to the point where the producers where I think the head of the studio's wife had a screening of it for her friend at their house. At the end, apologise for the film in tears. It is such a better film than this. It is a film that has real darkness to it. It has a moment in it where Donald Sutherland's character does something that this film would never dare touch because it's so dark and it could lose the audience. Because you watch this and think, I'm sorry, this is a dishonest representation of Hollywood. And actually Hollywood 10 years ago seems to be a much more dangerous place than Hollywood 100 years ago, according to this film. Anyway, sorry, go on. Well, this film is so caught up in the kind of spectacle of it, in the same way that kind of La La Land was. And I think it's most interesting as a tonal shift away from First Man, which was very chilly and very kind of very technical. They kind of put the technical aspects up front. And this is obviously much warmer and kind of feels looser, although when you're talking about the darkness, there is, you know, there are elements of, as you kind of say, boil-in-the-bag darkness, but the film locates them outside of mainstream Hollywood. There is a, there's a second, well, like kind of end of second act, third act shift, where they introduce the character who's featured in the trailer, played by um, Tobey Maguire, and it's just a very odd choice. It's a very odd narrative choice, because it's like, well, you've kind of moved away from Hollywood now, that ripped off the worst scene from Boogie Nights and made it and had all the problems that that scene had in Boogie Nights in this film. It was just a very, very ordinary film and it told a very, very ordinary story and borrowed from lots of films that were better. I'd read that Emma Stone was originally cast in the Margot Robbie role and was going to play like a Clara Bow type character. So Clara Bow was like the first big movie star. And when she had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts, be interesting to see how true that was, was replaced by Margot Robbie and then became much more fictionalised. Yeah, so, well, we need to move on, but is there anything else to say about Babylon um, other than be interested to see what you do next, Damien? Yeah, I, I enjoyed the energy of it and some of the scope, but the film ends with a kind of artistic conceit that is just completely takes you out of the narrative. The film ends up celebrating Hollywood, and it's like, despite all of the darkness, wasn't it worth it? And it's like... <sighs> <laughs> I'm I, 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 I'm biased in this regard because I quite like film but watching most of what's going on screen here it's like that's pretty fucking indefensible Actually, I'm not sure it is I think it's only really the um, casual death that happened that is the only thing that the film says oh yeah maybe that was a bit of a problem most of what's on screen I think is actually pretty safe uh, which, which is the problem but of course that's the thing right now everyone's we're in a period where we're having to look back at Hollywood and say oh that film I loved now has 
some casual racism in it. It now has terrible depictions of gender roles. I need to reconcile that now, but this was a film that just didn't have the intelligence to do that. And I think partly it's because ultimately the film ends up kind of having to tacitly condone all of it. So it can't touch upon, you know, sexual violence within Hollywood. It can't touch upon the extent of the racism because at the end it has to go, ta-da! Yeah, indeed, which is the problem with the film. Day of the Locust doesn't do that. Day of the Locust is a very hard film to see now. Um, it was on Sky about 10 years ago. It's, it's worth just keeping an eye out for it, see if it pops up on a streaming service anywhere. Anyway, yeah, but ultimately, I mean, I know that I think it was probably planned as a cameo at the very beginning, but any film that just has Olivia Wilde in it for a few minutes and then you never see her again, pff, there's something wrong with that. Speaking of which, on the end of year review, the one film that I did forget to talk about at length was Don't Worry Darling, which I thought was very interesting. I mean, yeah, we did a whole episode on it so people can listen to that, but that was a film that I thought was worthy of some mention at the end of the year, so uh, mentioning it on the next episode. But if you want to hear a full end-of-year appreciation for that film, then go to the Honeymoon Period podcast where Elaine talks about it and just does a really good summation of why that film, even though it has some problems, is actually very, very good. Cool, okay then, so we're moving on from a film that I didn't think was very good to a film that I don't know if it's going to be good or not, but the director's last film was very good. You saw Ennis Men, so tell us about that. Ennis Men is um, Mark Jenkins' follow-up to Bait, which I think was, if not my film of the year, certainly one of my films of the year for 2019. I think it was your film of the year. Yeah, and it is an utterly kind of singular depiction of this village on the Cornish coast and it's kind of shot like one of those like government sponsored documentaries from the 50s. Sorry that's Bait not Ennismen yeah. Yeah sorry that's Bait sorry rather than Ennismen it's got post sync sound as as Ennismen does and at Ennismen I wasn't sure about going into it because it's a folk horror and there are other talented directors who were in recent years have turned their hand to folk horror and not really necessarily been able to grapple with perhaps you know some of the more well-worn tropes and themes of the genre. Mm. But yeah, Ennis Men set on the, off the coast of Cornwall on this island, and it's um, back in the 70s, and there's this woman who is there. We only kind of, we only learn that her, she's identified as the volunteer uh, in the credits, and essentially she's keeping a track on the local wildflowers, which are endangered, and she's got this kind of daily routine of dropping the stone down the down this um, kind of open tin shaft, tin mine, and then she goes back to the cottage, and it's basically the idea of she builds up this routine that becomes very much ritualized and what happens when there's a breach in that routine. And the way that I kind of described it in my review is that it feels a bit like uh, Ingrid Bergman directing The Shining in terms of it's very stark, it's set on the coast and it's very exposed and it's very boldly psychological. Although yeah, there is still the ambiguity about whether or not these visions that the woman is experiencing might be supernatural. And... It's very interested in the material world in terms of setting up these objects and these things that she interacts with. You've got the stone down the mine and you've got the red generator. And it's kind of less a horror and more of like a metaphysical mystery because, you, you know, there's this girl that occasionally seems to live with her or this man that appears in certain scenes. And you've got the standing stone that seems to move. And I know some people are going to have absolutely no patience going into it because there's very little plot and you know some people might just think it's being needlessly obscure but I do think it challenges the viewer to interpret and there is kind of like a I think there's a reading of the film that that, that it's very much geared towards in fact it's odd when the more overt horror moments do occur they just feel a bit intrusive they feel a bit unnecessary this it's a horror film that 
is tense and is atmospheric, but it's not there for the jump scares. And it's kind of got influences like kind of as varied as I guess like Dickens's The Signalman, and there's also a Doctor Who episode called Stones of Blood, one of the classic Doctor Who episodes. But there's a real, um, there's a really crafted tone to it. I mean, Jenkins is, you know, if you're going to use the term auteur, he wrote it, he directed it, he did the editing, the sound design, the cinematography, <laughs> is very much his vision and. I really got on with it. I was worried that I wasn't going to, uh, especially because I was up in a cinema called um, the Castle Cinema up near Hackney. I'd never been to there before. And uh, there was some building work going on next door, so occasionally you'd just hear a drill. Jesus. Does it have a touch of the Ben Wheatley to it, or is it kind of that sort of thing? Yes. Yeah, if, if I was going to say Ben Wheatley, I'd say probably mostly Field in England. <laughs> oh, wow, that immediately kind of uh, puts it into a very, very specific audience appeal bracket, doesn't it? Yes. Well, I'll give it a look because I like Bait and this one, in the trailer, it does look like a film from the 70s. I'm not entirely sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing because it's like... Well, it was shot on a Bolex with um, 16mm. Yeah. Ennisman does feel legitimately old in the same way that Bait does. It doesn't just feel like an affectation. It does feel more like a film of that actual era. Okay. Well, that's interesting then. Which is often my complaint about films like um, Mank. Or, you know, those that kind of try to recapture that. But it's like, but this is shot in such a modern way. Yeah, to your point, it just seems like an affectation a lot of the times. That it's like, well, you love the old look of it, so therefore you're trying to do it. But it's not adding anything. It's not needed. It's actually maybe covering up some emptiness in your film. But, uh, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, Bait was really, really good. So, yeah, I do want to see what Mark Jenkins has done next. So I will be checking this out at some point. To go back to Babylon, one thing that I thought was quite good was that when Margot Robbie's star is on the ascent, she begins having a feud with the current hot thing in Hollywood. This actress called Constance Moore, played by Samara Weaving. I thought the casting of Samara Weaving was very funny because, of course, they do look very similar. I think that Samara Weaving is Australian as well. And Samara Weaving is always one of those, if you can't get Margot Robbie, you get Samara Weaving. I thought it was quite funny that Margot Robbie was the person that was kind of replacing Samara Weaving as the next new hot thing on the lot. So that made me laugh. Okay, well, let us now end with Megan, or M3gun, as I believe lots of people are calling it, including Jeff Canada on the film cast. When he called it that, it's like, oh, that's going to stick now. I'm always going to call it that now, M3gun. I'm just amazed that you haven't said that in a Welsh accent yet. I was going to say, this is not... And it might surprise people to hear this is not actually about a Welsh girl called Megan who goes on an Ibiza holiday. It's not about that at all. It's actually quite surprising to find out that Megan... I suppose there was Megan Follows who played Anne of Green Gables. She was Canadian. But yeah, I don't really think of Megan as a name that maybe... Uh, Canada. The Wales of America. The, <laughs> the Valleys of America. <laughs> but yeah, you don't really think of Megan as a name. That makes that no sense culturally or geographically. It's like, but it's still a bit offensive, so that's fine. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, Chris Cooling's gonna be watching this, being like, mm, "Not sure how I feel about that." <laughs> <laughs> but there was, there's lots of great things that have come out of Wales, including the name Megan. But yes, if anyone was to watch a reality TV show in this country in which people go to a paradise location and then start screaming at each other, there's probably going to be a Welsh girl in it called Megan. Anyway, so, but this Megan, directed by Gerard Johnston, who did 
Yeah, Housebound. He did the horror film Housebound in 2014. That was pretty good. But yes, this one is written by Akila Cooper and James Wan. And James Wan, of course, is one of the big horror directors. He's behind The Conjuring. He's one of the Blumhouse darlings. He wrote Dead Silence, which was the killer ventriloquist dummy film from 2007 time, was that? So he's got form when it comes to dolls. Uh, He's also got form when it comes to lucrative horror. So I go to the IMDb synopsis. A robotics engineer at a toy company builds a lifelike doll that begins to take on a life of its own. So... I mean, sort of. Yeah. That makes it sound slightly more fantastical than... That's right, yeah. This isn't supernatural. And to quickly go into the story, so Alison Williams, who I think is best known for girls, plays Gemma. She is the aunt of this young girl called Katie, played by Violet McGraw. And Violet McGraw is the young girl at the beginning of Doctor Sleep, in that very, very disturbing scene at the beginning of Doctor Sleep. And Violet McGraw plays Katie... Her parents die at the beginning of the film, so Katie has to go and stay with Gemma, her aunt. Gemma's not particularly equipped to uh, look after a kid, even though, ironically, she makes high-end toys. And one of the toys that she's been working on is a lifelike doll that can make friends with your child and also has a learning processor in it that can understand your child, can begin to know what your child thinks and likes to become a better friend. This really excites Gemma's boss, David, played by Ronnie Cheng, who's very, very funny. And they decide to go ahead and Katie imprints on Megan. So she becomes the thing that Megan is most concerned about. And yeah, from there, we have various different things that are not particularly original to this sort of film. So there's a neighbour that's not very nice. There are certain people that bully Katie. Who knows what's going to happen to them? But to put my cards on the table again, Megan is just one of those films that's like, yeah, I I just like this sort of film. It's Orphan meets Annabelle, but you've also got lots of classic demonic doll films in there as well that go right back to Dead of Night, which was like another ventriloquist puppet film. You've also got Terminator in there, quite a lot of Terminator. You have got Terminator. You've also got Robocop. I mean, this is a film uh-huh. that wears its influences on its sleeve. You've got a lot of Terminator in there. You've got a lot of Robocop in there. You've also got another film from one of the filmmakers that made those previous two films that's referenced at the end that we can't spoil because if you say the film, you'll probably guess what happens, even though it is signposted early on and it's like, I think this film might end like that. But yes, I have to admit, I really enjoyed this film. This just ticks off all my boxes, really, for what I like in popular horror film. It's funny. The the creepy moments are genuinely creepy. It really plays into that funny, nervous laughter, uncanny valley of having a doll that looks very, very real because you're trying to look for the humanity in it. But of course, it isn't there. When Megan becomes starts to become more aware, there's just some very, very clever stuff there. But yeah, what do you think of it? Yeah, I think I think it was definitely a well-oiled machine. It's one of those, despite all the influences, it didn't feel piecemeal. No, they all felt like they like they belonged, and I think the tone's really well judged. It's funny, but not broadly so. I mean, a lot of it's kind of commentary on culture and a bit of a corporate satire, but that's just kind of one component of it. The horror is not outrageous. One or two moments. Yeah, I really I really got on with it. And the fact it's also partly like a Frankenstein narrative in terms of creating something and then not taking responsibility for it or not being able to kind of engage with it. Mm. 
there's a bit of J-horror in there. Yeah, it's just a really fun, well-judged killer doll movie. One of Blumhouse's staples. Blumhouse, elevating the killer doll movie since whenever <laughs> the first Annabelle was. Yeah, or Dead Silence, which I think was before Annabelle. Yeah, that's the thing, is that this is one of those horror films, much like a B-movie. It brings in some big themes and addresses them in a fun way. One of the big themes here is the fear of parenting and the fear of responsibility for a child um, and not understanding that a child actually isn't just a small adult. They actually do need help. They do need some guidance and if you leave that to your toys and make the toys the babysitter then the child can begin to develop in strange and destructive ways i thought that was actually well done this film's about 100 minutes has to be said there's at least 10 minutes of credits because i stayed convinced there was going to be um, a post-credit scene and everyone else had gone and people were clearing up around me and there was no scene at the end. <laughs> and it was like, but the credits were super long. And it's there actually that I found out that this was shot in Auckland, doubling for Seattle. So that was quite surprising. So I couldn't see the joins on that. So there are themes in this film and it does address them in a popular way. And it tells the story through horror and action. But do you know what? To go back to Babylon, it's like, this is just a better example of how to write a script. <laughs> Because one, it has genuine characters that you care about, and two, you um, are baking the themes into the story rather than just having a checklist and ticking it off as you go along. So, yeah, well done to Akela Cooper and James Wan for doing that. Damien Chazelle, you should have a look. The effects in this film were great, and it's a mixture of using a real child, so using like a real child in long shots, and then in close-ups using either a puppet or a child with a replaced face or a contortionist. And there's a contortionist dancer who does some of the movements when Megan kind... You kind of realise that she's maybe... That her movement is a little bit smoother than the mechanical walking along that you've seen up until that point. And those moments, I thought, were really effective. Yeah, Megan is such a focus point of the film that she needs to really operate kind of seamlessly. And I think, mm. and I think the effect was really well achieved. And the fact is, you know, she's got personality... It's an impressively made horror film, and it's done incredibly well at the box office. We're almost certainly going to get a sequel, aren't we? Yeah, but where would you put the two? <laughs> um, or, or what would the subtitle be? It'll be M3GUN 2.0. Yep, there we go. <laughs> or just to confuse things, M6GUN. Yeah, M6 that's gun. right. <laughs> or M3GUN. The audience, because the audience, I saw it at half six on Tottenham Court Road on Friday night thinking, oh, this audience is going to not be that good. Ultimately, they were pretty good. At the beginning, there was just lots and lots of chatting and then um, they actually really got into the film. But this was originally going to be an R-rated movie until they started looking at it, seeing that it could scrape a PG-13. Because in the States, Drag Me to Hell, the Sam Raimi films are PG-13. That's a pretty strong 15 here. So they went for the PG-13, I think also because they began to realise that all the social media stuff that's very, very good was really resonating with teens. So a lot of it was reshot to be a PG-13. And there's a couple of scenes where the audience expected another shot at least, just you know, one or two more shots of horror and didn't get it. Just a couple of moments, you could sense the surprise that there wasn't a bit more horror, particularly as it's a 15 in this country, because there is threat, there is blood, it's just too strong for what the BBFC think a 12 should have. And I don't think that Akila Cooper liked the idea that it was a PG-13, because she said that she really hopes that the R-rated cut sees the light of day 
friend of the podcast, Adrian Zach, said that he'd heard that the R-rated cut is going to get released to Blu-ray. So um, huzzah for that, because uh, I think this will be one that will be adorning my shelf, particularly if that R-rated cut comes out. I did like the way also that... Megan had a habit of using songs to either comfort or express her mood in the moment. And there were some great choices of songs in there. There was one that really, really brought the house down, but yeah, I don't want to spoil it. And don't read the Guardian review because the Guardian review spoils which song it is. And it really made me laugh. Yeah, so so two uh, very different, but also but both at least uh, quite good horror films. Yeah, indeed. And Babylon. And Babylon, yeah, which was a bit of a horror, but not for the right reasons. Well, you saw one other horror film, didn't you? So shall we end on that? Unless there's anything else you, yeah, shall we... that you, you've got to say about Megan? Uh, no, I think we've covered it. I think we've covered the creepy uh, robot killer AI doll movie. Um, a quick shout out to Amy Donald, who played Megan, and also Jenna Davis, who did the voice of Megan. Because I thought that Megan's voice was very, very good, particularly as her learning processor kind of gave her a bit more sass. So yeah, I think the uh, the last one to talk about is Skinnamarink, which is a new um, indie horror, very experimental, the feature debut of a, a guy called uh, Kyle Edward Ball. How do you spell that? So Skinnamarink? S-K-I-N-A-M-A-R-I-N-K. Right, okay. And what's that one about? <laughs> it's essentially, it's about a young boy and girl who wake up in the middle of the night to find that their dad's disappeared and that all the windows and doors and all the, basically, the windows and doors and the general geography and feel of the house has completely changed. And that's about as much narrative as I can get because it is, when I say experimental earlier, it's very experimental. It essentially looks like you're watching the playback on an old VHS tape and there's just this swimmy, soupy, wormy static suffusing the screen that's absolutely, you know, that's depending on your level of patience, either fascinating or um, f- deeply frustrating. There are just extended takes of objects moving or shots of the corners of the room and you're not sure if something's going to happen. And it's very fragmented and it's got these, um, I think they're out of copyright, you know, lots of old black and white cartoons playing on the TV set that provide sinister undertones or, you know, either comforting or sinister. And it's a bit like one of those kind of creepypasta Reddit short horror stories extended to a feature length. Right. There are scenes that it's like, it's essentially the horror equivalent of slow cinema. And (laughs) the extent to which I was engaged with it varied. There are scenes in it which are absolutely suffused in dread. And there are points of it where you're like, I'm looking at a Lego set right now. <laughs> it's like, and it is about these two vulnerable kids and there's minimal dialogue and it's mostly done voiceover. In fact, the kids are off screen for 90% of the film and you just hear them and it's about, you know, distortion. And I guess the way I'll try and maybe try and describe it, it's, it's a bit like, um, I guess it's like Poltergeist on Ketamine. Wow, okay. Yeah, so another horror... So you've seen two horror... Well, you've seen three horror films this week, of course, but you've seen two that purposely have a visual style that makes it look like a remnant from a bygone age. Yeah, they're both in their own way. They're, they're very interesting films. I can't, in all honesty, recommend Skinnamarink. <laughs> as much, you know, I think people should support independent horror. It's got such a specific tone and pace. Like, seriously, it's a 100-minute film. I had no idea how long I'd been watching it at any point. <laughs> and because of the way it's structured or not structured, it's like, this could end any time. Yeah, I mean, 100 minutes is the same length as Megan, although, of course, Megan had a, as I said, had a long credit crawl. But yeah, I can, I've just watched the trailer. I can imagine the sort of film this is. I can imagine it works better at a cinema where you are trapped. <laughs> and Yeah, in all fairness, 
having just told people not to, not I, I can't necessarily recommend they see it at the cinema. I wouldn't necessarily have finished it if I'd been watching it at home. Yeah. The trailer ends with on-screen text that says, in theatres 1972, then flicks to 2022. So, hmm, it looks interesting. A hundred minutes does sound long. <laughs> I might give it a look when it inevitably appears on Shudder or something. Yeah, it is on Shudder later in the year. Oh, is it? Oh, okay, right. Well, I will check it out then and maybe put my phone across the room so I can't just reach for it, that I'd have to make a conversation to get up and go over to it, because uh, I think this one might need all of your attention. But you might be wondering, is this rewarding my attention as we go along? Yeah, I, th- I think it is how much you buy into the experiment and how you know how effective you find the atmosphere. Because it's very much a mood piece, and I saw it at the PCC, and I was worried that we were going to end up with an audience... That was bored. That was that was bored, and that they were going to get restless, and they didn't. There were a couple of points of like laughter because when it breaks the tension, it's suddenly so shocking. Right. <laughs> but I think it was well received on the whole. Although there were a couple of people who did leave. Mm. Like there were a couple of people. Occasionally, occasionally you'd just see somebody with their bag clearly bailing, being like, "I'm out. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys." That's understandable. But the Prince Charles cinema does seem like the best place for that sort of film. Either that or Fright Fest. Um, It sounds like a film that would play on the Fright Fest Discovery screen. Well, a whole bunch of interesting films there. And Babylon. (laughs) Uh, Gonna be mean to Babylon. I I definitely had more fun with Babylon than you did, though I've got, I think I completely agree with your criticisms. Did you have three hours and nine minutes of fun? Um, I think I probably had two hours of fun. All right. So if you'd have watched Singing in the Rain instead, you'd have had all the fun for the film. Yes, I mean, it would have been a very different experience. Yes, yeah, a much better one. The showers and singing in the rain are very different. <laughs> very good. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, well, on that note, I don't think there's any way to top that. So, yeah, Mr. Daniel, if the audience are looking for you... Uh, the audience, if our... My God, they can see us. If uh, the listeners are looking for you online, where can they find you? If you want to find me on Twitter, then I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. If you like that film Highlander, and how couldn't you, then Rob and I also do a sister podcast called Another Time McLeod, where we go through that wonderful film Highlander, scene by Gloria scene. We've actually done the film right now, and... The show's on hiatus, but there are about, how many episodes was it? 69 episodes? 70 episodes? Yeah, 60-something. Of um, of Highlander goodness for you to dive into, where we go through the film with, it has to be said, some wonderful special guests. And yeah, so that's available to listen wherever you're listening to this. You can find that on Twitter at McLeodTime. And if you want to drop us a Highlander-themed email, then you can do that at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. Great. And yeah, if you're looking for me online, you can find me on Twitter for the moment at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing, such as it is, at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Um, if you want to follow this podcast on Twitter, you can do so at MovieRobcast. And yeah, if you have enjoyed, please do rate and review. It's great to get the feedback and it really does help us reach a wider audience. So yes, Mr. Daniel, thank you once again. It's been a pleasure. Well, shall we tease what we're doing next? Oh, yes, yes. What are we doing next? We have got ourselves down to do The Fablemans, the new film from Steven Spielberg. Ah, excellent. So, yeah, that'll be the next one you hear from us. Yeah, until then, thanks for listening. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll speak to you again very, very soon. 
Research shows if you force a child to eat vegetables, they'll be less likely to choose those foods as adults. Is that so? Yes. Experts say- Megan, turn off. I thought we were having a conversation.